this is Jada and Emily with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story, recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's special episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to NASA astronaut Johnny Kim, who's also a Navy SEAL and Harvard Medical School graduate. So how's it going? It's going pretty well. I think we can both Jade and I were really excited to be here and meeting with you. Um, we just wanted to quickly review, we're going to be going through, um, you know, kind of like, we'll touch briefly on your high school years, but we'd really love to learn more about um, like your time in the Navy as a SEAL, um, a corpsman, and also undergraduate experience and how like um, these carried you through medical school into your experiences today. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to talk about some of that stuff. Um, I have uh, not, unfortunately, I have not read through any of the questions you may have asked. So if you ask them, it'll be the first time hearing them, but I think that should be okay. Yeah. So usually we just kind of start off the podcast is asking like um, what your thoughts were in high school about your plan for the future and kind of just wondering like, did you have any idea that medicine was something you were interested in or was it solely something completely different? Before we start, um, but we have been trying, you have, you, both of you are like some of the most tenacious people I know in that this podcast has been trying, we've been trying to do this for a couple of years now. Is that? Yeah. COVID years. Yeah. It seems like a really long time and it, it was just really a never really never a good time for yeah. me. Um, are you both in high school? Yes, we're both juniors. Both juniors. Okay, wow. That's pretty cool. I don't think I've ever, when I was a junior, well, podcasts weren't really a thing when I was in high school, but I can't imagine I would have thought to, or been organized enough to have created a podcast. So good on both of you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it just kind of came up as like, I don't know, it was during COVID and we were both interested in the medical field. And so we figured the best way to learn about it is to talk to people who have been through the training, who have been a part of the field already. And so that's just kind of how it started. And then we just started recording conversations. Okay. Am I able to ask questions back as well? Yeah, of course. Is this a back and forth type yeah. of, okay. I, I haven't listened to your previous podcast, um, but I didn't know if it was strictly just a Q&A type of thing or more of a conversational piece. But yeah, ready to get into any kind of topics you want to talk about. Okay, perfect. Um, so in high school, we know that you were interested in becoming a SEAL from a young age, but was there any idea that you were interested in the medical field at all as a high school student? No, is the short answer. So it's it can be a long answer. My father who immigrated here in the early 80s from South Korea, he didn't, his idea of success for his children, especially for me, was to go to medical school. In particular, he stated that I would go to Harvard Medical School and become a doctor. And naturally, as a rebellious young teenager, that's the last thing I wanted to do. So if there was any job or any occupation that I was sure I was not going to do, it was medicine. And so I never planned on being a medical doctor. I wanted to be a 
a warrior. I wanted to, you know, scholarly things were the last last things on my mind. And so for me, I really just wanted to join the Navy and go into special operations and uh, turn of events that led me to medicine. For me, all I wanted to do was go into special operations and, uh, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, it seems like time can move so slow. And especially when you have your heart set on something, you just want to get there. And so for me, I had not applied to any colleges. I did take the SAT at the request from my, of my mom, but I knew I was going to go to college, didn't apply to anything. And as soon as I could, I was talking to the Navy recruiter. And uh, for me, in right after high school, actually towards the tail end of high school, I got pretty hurt. I got an ankle injury, rolled it really, really bad. Unfortunately, nothing broken, but certainly uh, pretty, um, some pretty severe injuries to my ligaments, my ankle. And so I was on crutches for a few months and this prevented me from joining the Navy immediately after high school. I think my ship date that we call it like the, basically like the day you get shipped out to the Navy was the day after or several days after graduating high school. So I was definitely in a hurry. And so getting this ankle injury was kind of crushing for me. And uh, at the time I was arranged to join the Navy as an intelligence specialist. And I wanted to be an IS, short for IS. And I wanted to be an intelligence specialist, uh, despite not knowing anything about what intelligence specialists do, I wanted to do it because it sounded really, really cool. And for me, I knew, hey, I just wanted to be a SEAL. It doesn't really matter what ACE, what kind of job I do in the Navy because I was naively confident that I'd be able to get through SEAL training and whatever job I chose after boot camp wouldn't matter. So I wanted to be an intelligence specialist. But being hurt, that contract fell through the cracks. And the recruiters at the Los Angeles MEP station were like, son, if you want to join the Navy as soon as you can, you've got to be a hospital corpsman. And I had no idea what a hospital corpsman was. And they explained it to me. They, and, uh, you know, it was funny. I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of, med this is like going to the, you know, bordering medicines, which is exactly what I did not want to do. But again, had that attitude of, well, it doesn't really matter what I choose for my A school after joining the Navy. I'm going to be a SEAL anyway, so it, it won't matter. And uh, I don't, you know, we go down, talk about that story later, but it actually did have a dramatic effect on what I did in the Navy and the SEAL teams and further on in my life. So it was kind of those random turn of events, me getting hurt and the Navy's numbers of not having enough hospital corpsmen that led me down the path of being a hospital corpsman in the Navy. So that's how I got introduced to medicine. Wow, that's definitely very unique. And I think, I mean, how could someone have predicted like that, those kinds of events? Um, I think it definitely requires quite a bit of tenacity to be able to, to continue to like try and pursue um, that SEAL path even after becoming injured, which is, you know, something that would stop a lot of people. Um, for our listeners that aren't um, very familiar with like military um, rankings and stuff like that and positions, um, what distinguishes a SEAL from other careers in the Navy and what are some of their responsibilities? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Navy is, you know, 
there's a lot of different things you can do in the Navy. And naturally, when people think of the Navy, they think of ships. And uh, certainly that's what the Navy is known for. Navy is also has a ton of planes. We have a lot of aviators. And uh, so we fly a lot of planes in the Navy. We have a lot of ships. We have submarines. And while we don't have a typical infantry force, we do have special operators and we call them SEALs or we call NATO Special Warfare and includes other branches of within the Navy, including EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal and SWIC, which stands for Special Warfare Command Crewmen. And what SEALs do is that they are special warfare operators that the SEAL is an acronym, it stands for Sea, Air and Land. And uh, it is meant to describe the special operators that train for each environment to be able to work in that. And certainly where we can be a maritime first, maritime force, meaning we can operate in the water or coming from the water. We can operate on the land as we have done for the last couple of decades for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and operate from the air, mostly by air insertion. So uh, we call it halo or free fall, but it's otherwise known to most of the world as skydiving. And uh, what do we do? It's hard to summarize that, but uh, we're a force that can, um, I guess the mission set's quite varied. It, it's hard to kind of summarize in this short podcast and probably outside the scope, but any kind of missions that require a smaller group of operators to work in and uh, adapt to the environment, SEALs are great for, and we've typically have done very well in the mountains of Afghanistan and the urban environments of Iraq. Yeah, so in addition to being part of this elite group in the Navy, um, you were also a corpsman, which I think a lot of people don't really know what that is. So could you also kind of describe what a corpsman does and also kind of the military medicine training environment? Because I imagine that it's a lot more intense than, um, you know, more traditional medical school, just because you're focused more on the emergency medicine that you're going to be using out in the field. Yeah, so hospital corpsmen is just the Navy's term for their medical technicians. So certainly you have hospital corpsmen that operate in an EMT in type of environment, like an EMT paramedic type of environment. You also have hospital corpsmen that are on ships that are x-ray technicians that um, basically any hospital that can be filled by a medical technician is going to be filled by a hospital corpsman. And so getting into that rating gave me a glimpse of what I might be doing if I were to join the Navy as a hospital corpsman. And you learn everything from very basic things like how to take vital signs to how to take a phlebotomy, how to take blood, how to work up a diagnosis and basically assist a, um, a medical provider, whether you're assisting a nurse or a physician's assistant or a physician. When I became a SEAL, that kind of locked me into being a SEAL with a medical expertise. And so the way SEALs operate, because we don't have too many operators in a fighting unit, we need to have a lot of overlapping capabilities and people that have multiple capabilities uh, because we just don't have the personnel to be, hey, 
you know, you said that people are only going to be medics. You said that people are only going to be weapons experts. You kind of need to know a lot of things. And so for me, once I had become a SEAL, that put me down a route of becoming a combat, a special operations combat medic. And at the time, which was 2004, we did, the SEALs did a lot of their training for this through the Army's JFK, JFK Warfare Center, which is in Fort Bragg. And so we shared a lot of the same medical training as Green Beret medics, um, which are called 18 Deltas. And uh, yeah, the, the training was definitely intense. I, I can say now that I've been through, med- you know, the hardest part of medical school, the hardest part about being a physician is getting into medical school. I think if you ask any physician that, they'll tell you that. But when I compare the training rigor and the environment with internship in the hospitals, the wards, the clinics, medical school, certainly the six month period of time I spent learning to be a combat medic was the most intense because you're taking someone who has relatively, well, who has zero knowledge about medicine. And at the end of it, you're trying to get a thinking combat medic that can take care of most injuries that they're going to see on the battlefield, including, well, for the post 9-11 wars, it was mostly blast injuries and gunshot wounds. And it sounds like, um, like you had said earlier, you tried to put quite a bit of distance, quite a bit of distance between um, yourself and medicine beforehand, um, before all of this experience, before these experiences came along. Um, after your training and after you had some experience on the field, uh, were you still trying to find your way and decide like what you wanted to do after, or did you realize that medicine was um, going to be something that you wanted to further pursue? So it's a, it's a great question. And so when I examined why I didn't want to be a medical physician, why I didn't want to go into medicine, I, you know, I, I have to admit a lot of it was just the rebelliousness of being a teenager and not wanting to do what my father had prescribed me to do. And I think that's just really natural when you grow up and someone says, hey, you're going to do X, Y, Z. Depending on your personality, you may or may not like that. I certainly did not like that. And so it kind of forced me away from considering medicine in a serious capacity. Now, another reason why I didn't want to be a medic in the SEAL teams was that, you know, I talked about my desires to want to be a special operator. I, I really wanted to be a warrior and being a medic to me at the time was in contrast to my aspirations to be a warrior. I didn't think that you could be a warrior and a medic. They are kind of two sides of a coin and at least the way I thought of it. I don't think, I don't think of it that anymore like that. And so I naively thought that, Hey, if I became a SEAL and then I was the medic, I would never see any action. I would never be put in combat situations. And that's not what I wanted. I couldn't have been any more wrong because there are certain people you're always going to have on a mission, on a combat mission, and one of them is the medic. And so that almost guaranteed my ticket to be able to see the kind of combat that I was, that I wanted to see at the time. Because uh, as someone who yearned for it, it's just one something I wanted to see. It's kind of a really naive thing. And I think it's not an uncommon thing when you talk to a lot of young aspiring warriors. Um, So when did I start to think about it seriously? So I 
started taking it seriously when I realized, hey, my my technical expertise, my ability to understand and learn medicine is going to save lives. And I took it very, very seriously after that. When I became actually interested in it was certainly overseas when I saw the positive human benefits, the the impacts you can make that people who knew medicine, that medical providers could make. I saw that on the first person. I saw that in, you know, before my eyes and that had a big impact on me. And uh, I saw it firsthand from surgeons operating on my friends who had been shot in the leg or had been shot in the face. And I wanted to be able to provide that. I wanted to be able to provide that kind of impact. And so that was certainly beginnings of seeds being planted in my experience of, hey, maybe this is something I might want to do later. And uh, certainly after seeing combat and and uh, wanting to con- continue my service, but not in that in that specific way, medicine naturally came up as the ne- next thing to do for me. Yeah, so similarly to you, I guess, um, I don't know about so much about Emlyn, but at least for me, um, it was also kind of like personal experiences that led me like to really be motivated to go into medicine um, because my younger brother was diagnosed with cancer when he was four, I was eight. And ever since then, it's like just kind of living part-time in the hospital and watching him go through that treatment um, until ultimately becoming a cancer survivor kind of continued to push me and motivate me to go into the medical field. And so that kind of leads to our next question, um, which is like, everyone has some kind of trauma that they face in their lives. And sometimes I feel like that kind of trauma that you face pushes you to work harder and tackle like these bigger, more difficult projects that other people might shy away from. Um, So what do you think, like what role do you think trauma plays in motivation and drive? So I think trauma can be can be a motivator. I think it has the potential to cut, to be the spark and, and the fuel for someone who's experienced that trauma to sublimate that into a force for good. But I also think that trauma has a way of, of sending people down a dark path. And so I don't know what it is that differentiates people from being able to take that trauma to make it a force for good. I mean, you talked about your brother and I'm sure that was, you know, you were only eight years old at the time, but a very, a very traumatic experience for you. And I, I hope your brother is okay now, but um, what makes, before I can answer that question, I'd like to know, what is it from your perspective that really wants, that really pushes you to go to medicine? Is it because you saw just the positive benefit? It sounds like a really personal experience that you've had, that your family has had from your brother's treatment. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's kind of like the doctors and the nurses and even like the child life specialists who have like taken care of my brother and of my family. Um, I think they just, they did a really good job of not really scaring us from the cancer. Cause I like, we have friends who have been through it and they like the one thing they don't want to do is be a doctor because they were stuck in a hospital the whole time. 
But for me, I'm, and I can't speak for my brother. I'm not sure he wants to spend much more time in the hospital, but at least for me, it's like, that was kind of, they kind of made it like my safe place. Like even after school, my friends would drop me off at the hospital and I could be there with my brother and with the doctors who would teach me kind of like what they were doing and why it was working that way. And so I think going through that, like while it was traumatic and definitely not like the most positive time of our lives, it was probably the biggest thing that's, and it was most of my childhood. So that's kind of all that I've known for a lot of my childhood. So it's, I think that's the biggest driver. It's just like, that was ingrained in my memory for most of my life. Yeah, I think when you, you see the positive benefit that a certain, that your service, that your life can make, it gives you purpose, it gives purpose. I certainly think that for us, for all of us, we have very moral lives, you know, where a human year, you know, a hundred years is, is a blink of an eye. When you consider just um, how long the earth has been around. And so I think it's helpful for us to live our lives when we have purpose and how we define that purpose is up to each person. But a really obvious one is when your actions in your daily life, in your, in your life, positively impact other people, another person, whether that's in a really direct way, like medicine, or maybe in an indirect way as a public servant leader, then it gives purpose to your life. And so when you ask me that question, does trauma, can it help motivate you? I certainly think it can help motivate you because, but I think I take it with an asterisk in that you need to be able to sublimate and transform that trauma to have a purpose where you're trying to make a difference. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there are multiple ways that that experience could have gone. And I think that's kind of how it went for a lot of other people. And that's the reason that they stray away from it. But um, I mean, I'm lucky that for me, it was such a positive experience and that's pushed me to continue like to have the stream of medicine and continue that path. Do you know what you want to do in medicine or at this point? I mean, this is, you know, you have a long road of, you both have a long road ahead of you if you want to pursue this path, but have either of you given any thought into what kind of medicine you'd like to do? I mean, I thought it changes like every year. So I'm trying to keep my options open, which is part of the reason why we started this podcast is just to hear from a lot of different people, um, even the fields that we're pretty sure like we don't want to go into just to kind of hear what it's about. But I mean, a couple of years ago, it was cancer research just because that was a lot of what I knew. And then in high school, they offer some medical classes. So I learned a little bit more and um, I've kind of found that I like the heart. So maybe something cardio, but yeah, and then surgery is also kind of interesting, but I'm not really sure. So, yeah. Yeah, as for myself, I've had um, just a bit of experience uh, uh, learning from an interventional cardiologist, and that was a really eye-opening experience, in my opinion, because I got to see um, not only the way that they affect it, like someone's lifestyle changes, but also like the direct impact they can have, um, whether it's by like putting in a stent or, or um like some of the results are um, like immediate. And I think that's really gratifying. Yeah, that what you just said and Len about immediately gratifying was certainly one of the reasons why I chose emergency medicine because I liked that there was a central hub 
where people who are in their worst hour wanted to go because no one wants to go to the emergency room. No one ever wants to go. And you've got to be pretty sick to want to go. So it's like a really efficient way to find a hub of really sick people. And so uh, that's why I've always been interested in the emergency room as well as the ICU. Uh, can I ask, I think it's, I, well, I think it's amazing that both of you are so passionate and interested about pursuing medicine. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of roads to Dublin, a lot of roads to making a difference, to leaving a positive impact in people's lives. Are both of you okay if you along the way lose interest in this goal or are you opening your eyes to other other paths? Because I think obviously it'd be, it'd be great if you pursued medicine, but I also think it's equally great if you decide along the way that, hey, I like engineering more or I wanna go into aerospace or I wanna study physics or, or anything. Absolutely. I think um, there hasn't been a single person that we've interviewed where they've just had a direct pipeline from wanting to be a doctor from the minute they were born to just graduating medical school and going into their residency. They've always had some sort of apprehension and that's almost better because it makes you take a step back and reflect on um, your choices and like where you see yourself. Um, as for myself, I could definitely see myself going into research personally. I love chemistry. I love biochemistry. If you can't tell. Um, saw the periodic table on your back. I like it. Absolutely. And I think that has um, just as much of like a widespread implication on like helping people. Um, even if you didn't want to be directly in the medical field, I think research definitely has limitless potential in terms of um, just like they've like um, innovating technologies that could have the same effect, like similar effect of helping people, if oh, that makes sense. Absolutely, I always find research to be, you know, you may not, often not, will not get immediate gratification from your research, but it has the potential at a large scale, at a very, very large scale to help people for generations to come. There are, I mean, there's research experiments done hundreds of years ago, and uh, those researchers are long dead, but their findings and their work has benefited people for years. So I can understand. I just want to make sure you're both keeping your keeping uh, keeping an open perspective. And it sounds like you are because college is an amazing experience. You're going to have a lot of you know, there's going to be hardship. There's going to be new experiences. And so it's certainly OK to change one's mind. And I have I can tell I've changed my mind plenty of times. But uh, as long as you follow your heart and what you want to do and your passion, you'll always, you won't be led astray. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And um, just to go right along with that, we've been talking about the medical aspect of your journey thus far, but you went to college and you majored in mathematics. Um, what sparked that decision? And did you feel like that was the right move for you? Retrospectively? Yeah, I actually wish I, so I only had three years to go to undergraduate school. And so you know, starting a family, I had to work part-time um, for the for the school to pay for the rest of my tuition. And I also had to do all my medical prerequisites. So trying to get an engineering degree in those three years, and, you know, oftentimes a lot of people take five years to do that, it was just not possible to do. And I was maxing out like 18, 21 credits for a semester sometimes and taking summers and winters. And so really, really tried, wanted an engineering degree. But for me, the next best thing was to get a math degree. And for one, I've always loved math. I've loved, I think numbers are very beautiful. 
they're very elegant and truthful and um, the practical application of it is also what I'm really interested in, which is why I wanted an engineering degree. And I find like math and engineering are two sides of the same coin. They just, uh, and sometimes uh, really overlapping of, of the kind of people that, they, that, interest, that are interested in them. I knew I was gonna go into medicine. So for me, I wanted to study anything but medical related for undergrad. And math was the way to do that. So I also find, I mean, I just found it so interesting for many reasons. And also, if you can teach yourself math, one, so being teachable is one of the most important skills you can have. And there are, I cannot think of many subjects that show you are teachable, as teachable as math does. If you can learn math, I can teach you to be a mechanic. I can teach you to be a pilot. I can teach you to be a doctor. You can learn it. And so that's kind of why I wanted to do it. I knew it was going to be hard. Yeah, I mean, kind of going, I mean, going along with what you said about teaching and learning, um, you've been through a lot of different training programs, a lot of different schools, had a lot of education uh, that has prepared you to get to where you are today. So were there any, I guess, I guess like your mindset, like has your mindset changed or were there any specific like study techniques that you found particularly effective um, or just additional principles that you've discovered that accelerate your learning or just help the material stick because you've had so much that you've had to accumulate over the years? So this topic has fascinated me for many years because I've always wanted a time hack. And I can tell you after years of practicing and looking into this, there is no time hack. There are ways to certainly be more efficient. And I found that I feel like undergrad in my first year in medical school were all a big experiment for me to try and find effective study techniques. And my conclusion is that, and I'm not going to say anything that you haven't already heard. My conclusion is that everyone has their own study techniques, whether you're a visual learner or an auditory learner or a practical learner. And there are small things you can do to enhance your memory retention. But overall, I find that active-based learning is going to be the best one. I've tried various things. I've tried space repetition algorithms. Have you ever heard of space repetition? Oh, I've seen some, Okay, wow, that's, that's awesome. I, maybe they've made themselves more mainstream. But for those listening who don't know, space repetition algorithmic learning is when typically done in the format of electronic flashcards, but you pose your, you make questions and answers and you answer these flashcards. And when you answer them, you answer them in a graded format, the spectrum of how well you knew the answer. And let's say for, if you got the answer wrong, you might give it a score of one. If you knew it really, really well, you might give it a score of four or five. And based on your, your inputs, that will then go through an algorithm that will reschedule when you should restudy that card, that note card, to best retain memory. It was a way of converting short-term memory into long-term memory. And I tried to do that for everything. I tried to do it for medical school. I still actually use it right now. And so it has its pluses and benefits, but nothing will replace active-based learning where you learn something, you see it, you feel it, you use your senses, whether you're learning about an engine, a combustion, go to an auto, go, go to the garage, feel an engine with your hands, turn it on, take it apart, put it back together. That 
is the best form of learning. And so uh, that's what I found. And to answer your question, no, I don't have any special technique or hack really other than that. I optimize my learning. And the only other thing, and I think the two most important elements in learning or being successful as anything is motivation and time. If you have motivation, and it's assumed you have the attitude for it, but let's assume you have the attitude for it. If you have motivation and time, you can learn anything. There's something called YouTube. <laughs> you can YouTube anything. You don't know how to replace the alternator in your car. I had to look it up the other day because I didn't know how to do it for my specific car. And there's great videos on how to do it. And I learned how to do it. If you have the willingness, the motivation to learn, and you have time, time for me is, is usually the, the, the uh, limiting factor then you can pretty much learn anything. Yeah. And of course, on the basis of crunch time and the world where, you know, time is money, medical school, um, can you talk about maybe some of the major differences that you experience between um, civilian medicine and your, your um, military medicine training? Yes. Trying to think of something. Well, maybe the most obvious one that comes to my mind is triage. And triage in the military in a combat setting is very different from triage in a civilian in a medical center that's abundant with resources. And uh, so in a more military setting, if you're in an austere environment and you are in combat, you probably don't have many supplies. You don't have many transport options, and it's imperative that you continue fighting so that you don't sustain more casualties. So in a military environment, you might not give treatment to someone who is severely wounded because you know that from um, from like group a group perspective, your chances of survival or for the group survival is to actually give treatment to someone who may be less injured so that he or she can return to the fight. That's completely opposite in the civilian world where you're abundant with resources and personnel and time, well, maybe not time, but personnel and res um, resources that you're going to give your attention to those most in most dire straits who need it. And so that's maybe something that is different. I used to be able to say that there were things in the military medical world where applying tourniquets and uh, um, maybe you know resuscitation efforts for for fluid volume and blood products. Maybe those were different, but those are quite aligned now in the civilian. You know, there was a time where the not all the medical world were on the same page when it came to applying tourniquet. And uh, you mean, even in the early days of the post 9-11 war, people thought putting a tourniquet on for too long a period of time was could be really, really bad. And people have found that no, that's actually the benefits of a tourniquet for a, an arterial bleed or someone that's really, really losing a lot of blood is greatly, greatly outweighs any potential damage, tissue damage that you might incur from leaving tourniquet on. So uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd say that most 
I can't really think of too many differences. But again, I I am a little disconnected from the current methodology of, of medicine, just not having practiced clinically for some years now. Yeah, so you mentioned um, that one of the differences was that in the military, you kind of allocate those resources towards those who are more likely to survive and be able to go back into combat. Um, so kind of on that same track, what would you say is the hardest thing that you needed to learn coming out of the military and into the civilian world, especially in medicine? Because I imagine like coming out of that environment and into the civilian medical world, it would have been more difficult to connect with feelings just because there's not much room for personal feelings um, in combat, especially in medicine, when you have to allocate those resources to those who are most likely to survive and that you'd come out of the military kind of cold and like with less bedside manner than those who just went the traditional route. So transitioning from military, you know, I've, I've remained military this whole time. You know, I've, I actually hit 20 years this year and I never thought I would hit 20 years in the military. But for me, transitioning from a military to an academic environment was very difficult. And I have to say, you know, it's not really medically related in any way. It was just, just kind of life experiences related. But the, I'd have to say ego and humility were were really the important things that I needed to learn when I transitioned from the military to to academic medicine, to go to medical school. When you go to medical school, you submit yourself to be vulnerable, to be open, to change and opening your perspective. And that can be really hard to do for someone who is still young, but has experienced a lot of trauma in their life. And that was me. I had experienced a lot of trauma on the battlefield and even before that. And so being able to open myself, going through the medical process was really, really hard for me, but it was absolutely crucial for me to be a good medical provider. And uh, that really has nothing to do with medicine. I think that's just a overall important life lesson is that regardless of the experiences we have or how hardened we might be calloused there is always ego that's going to be in our lives and we have to extinguish that if we really want to continue growing. And uh, there were certainly some years of me in that transition where I didn't grow because I had let ego get in the way. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with you that um, these kinds of lessons definitely um, transcend the medical field and your experiences there. Um, as for humility, I think all of us could stand to um, humble ourselves. And we actually read somewhere that you got a job giving out parking tickets. Um, what was, what was, I guess, what was your biggest takeaway from that? And like, I guess, does that apply to the lesson <laughs> that you just um, discussed? Uh, yes, I, I did give out parking tickets. That was a, that was a good parking enforcer on the grounds of University of San Diego. If you were parked illegally, you would get a ticket from me. <laughs> uh, I had to do it for, to pay for the rest of my tuition and it was humbling and I think it's great. Look, I don't think any of us, no matter where you are in your life, should ever be too good to do a job. And I think that it becomes even more important as you get older and naturally get higher 
in whatever respective totem pole you work in. As you get higher and gain the respect of your peers in the community, don't forget what it's like to be on the bottom of the pole because we all start there. And you can be so much more impactful as a leader to young mentees when you show you're above, uh, that you are not above any, any job um, and you're willing to lead from the front. And so, uh, yeah, giving tickets was really a funny part of my <laughs> of the three years I spent at the University of San Diego. I thought it was a big humble pill. I think overall it was good for me. Um, it did make my life a little difficult because there was just a finite amount of time during those years and I was trying to get into medical school and also my oldest son was born around that time. But um, yeah, I, I think probably what was even a more of a humble pill than that was going to ROTC as a combat veteran of the post 9 wars. And so, and it's not just me that's done this. It's, you know, ROTC for the Navy and for a lot of services who are prior enlisted and they go to school, you know, you're going, you're not only are you older, um, but in our particular generation, a lot of us had seen a lot of combat. So then to go to ROTC, which is very, very structured and has a lot of rules and uh, some of which might seem really silly. You kind of just have to eat your words, nod your head, smart salute and carry on. And so that also is a good exercise in humility and uh, yeah. I, I think overall was very, very good for me. I think some people have a harder time with it than others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's also important that we include some of these things um, in our, in our journeys, especially with the people we interview, they're always very wildly successful. They're doctors, they're astronauts in this case as well. But um, we also have to remember that just, that just because, you know, you're giving out parking tickets, it doesn't necessarily set you back from your, um, intended path. And I think that's important for a lot of people to realize as they, especially younger people listening to this podcast, as they decide um, what they would like to pursue in the future. Um, switching back to our uh, medical track, I think we just, we discussed medical school and going into residency as an ER doctor. One of the questions that we like to ask people that we interview is what was just like a, um, a typical day in the life as an ER doctor? So I was an intern at Mass General and Brigham Hospital in Boston. And so the life of an intern, really long hours, it really depended what ward you were in. So if you were in the emergency room, you had, you know, you had your shifts um, allocated, you know, which might be 12 hours or more than 12 hours. And uh I just remember being very, very chronically tired <laughs> for not only all of medical school, but certainly for my internship. And so I happened to live quite close. I, I, I rode on a bicycle to work, but it was just one of those things where I spent so many hours in the hospital and sometimes I'd sleep there because it was just easier because I knew I'd be back, back on ship so quickly. Um, you know, you, you get up and uh, it just feels like Groundhog's Day. I mean, I, um, every different ward had had its own flavor, whether you work in the ICU or medicine. I particularly liked medicine. I think it was certainly more cerebral and talked a little, talk a lot about what your patients might have and what might be going on. And 
and really data driven. You would, I remember spending hours just debating what every single data point meant to the point that it could drive some people crazy, but I definitely enjoyed the academic and cerebral side of it. And I uh, definitely enjoyed the emergency, emergency medicine side of things where I could, I could go in a shift. And uh, what I kind of liked about emergency medicine is that I felt like I didn't carry anything home with me. Certainly after the shift ended, you'd write, you know, you'd finish writing up your notes that you hadn't, weren't able to get to during the shift. But when you went home, you went home. You didn't have to think about your panel of patients the next day because you knew that you'd have a whole new panel of patients. And people say this in a both a positive and a negative way. I thought that was positive because I liked the experience of meeting new people and not having to bring anything work, bring anything home with me. Um, but for some people who like to have maybe more longitudinal relationships with their patients, that's not such a good thing. And uh, yeah, I just the day in life was a lot of coffee, a lot of standing on one's feet, and a lot of typing, <laughs> and also seeing a lot of patients, of course. Yeah, so usually this is where we end the podcast, but of course for you it's a little bit different because after you did your whole medical path, um, you got accepted into the astronaut program at NASA. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is you do at NASA and also just touch a bit on what the training is like and if there were any similarities that you saw between the other trainings that you've been through in the past? Yeah, so I was selected to be a NASA astronaut in 2017 and for the first two years went through initial astronaut candidate training, which was like grad school, but with more working out and more physically intensive activities. And so we learned everything that a general astronaut needs to know from operating the space station to uh, learning to operate in the T-38 jet, which is something that we have and uh, learning to work in the spacesuit doing spacewalks, which is a really physically intensive thing, requires a lot of coordinated planning. And uh, one of the more fun things that we do, we also learn to speak uh, intermediate level of Russian. And uh, of course, also put ourselves through team building activities, which was probably one of the more fun things about being an astronaut. The most important thing about being an astronaut is being a good team player. So we have a lot of people that are really, really talented and good from, and just the best of the best from their respective fields. But being a good individual helps, does not really help a team of astronauts. We need people that can work with a lot of people. And that's what we really look for. And so that's something that carried over from my time as a physician, working with a team of nurses and technicians and other doctors in the emergency room, to also learning to work with other SEALs, other special operators, or working with conventional forces, infantry units, air-to-air -air assets, air-to-ground assets in combat austere environments. And so all of those skills kind of, it's almost like the job I have in NASA that all my previous experiences were setting me, were setting myself up to, to try and be a good astronaut, try and be a good teammate, because I really rely on every one of those skills that I've experienced and I've learned and made mistakes from to be a good team playing astronaut. After I, I don't know if graduate is the right word, but after a couple of years of training, you, you are done with astronaut candidate training. And so from there, I went on to support the exploration office where we, our mission to go back to the moon is called Artemis. And uh, following the Greek mythology, 
tradition that we have had since Apollo in the 60s. And so we're going to go back to the moon to learn what it's like to live on a planetary body and, of course, with our ultimate aim of going to Mars one day. And so after serving in that exploration office where I was assisting, because a lot of it right now is in the planning development phase, I had the really fortunate opportunity to serve as an increment lead at NASA. And so that's a really fancy way of saying that I was kind of the ground liaison between my team of astronauts on the space station, which were who, many of whom were my friends, and the rest of NASA mission control and the astronaut office and actually the astronauts family. So it's a great, great job and privilege that I had to do. After that, I actually had some time in my kind of the phase of life. I'm or at least the phase professionally that I'm in at NASA. And so I went to go to the Navy for a little bit and I learned to be a flight surgeon. And uh, actually that was before, um, that was immediately after finishing astronaut training. But where this has all led to is that I was exposed to aviation. I was never exposed to aviation before NASA. When I came to NASA, I was exposed to aviation of what it's like to feel G's, G-forces, of what it's like to do aerobatics in the plane, of, of learning instrument departures and, and approaches. And I just learned to love flying. And so after I became a flight surgeon, flight surgeon qualified, I learned that there was a pathway for me to learn to become a pilot, to become an aviator, a naval aviator. And so I've had a really fortunate opportunity to take some time away from NASA. And I'm actually in naval flight training right now, which is also one reason why it's been so hard to get a schedule here, because I literally work from 5 a.m. to like 8 p.m. studying and learning how to fly a plane. And so I'm living in Corpus Christi right now and uh, going through naval flight training with uh, uh, a lot of young aspiring naval aviators who have just graduated college and just joined the Navy or the Marine Corps to learn how to fly planes. And so um, that's what I'm doing right now. And uh, after this, I will go back to NASA and uh, support the office in one way, whether that's preparing for a space mission or preparing for the next group of astronauts going to space. Yeah, so kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier with teamwork being such an important part of um, each career path that you've kind of taken. Um, what, like, you've been a part of various teams, so what do you think is the biggest enemy, or maybe not enemy, but um, an inhibitor of teamwork? And how do you counter that so that the team works better together? What's the most effective way to push past those inhibitors on teamwork? So, it's a really insightful question you've asked and it doesn't have a very simple answer, but it's a really, really important answer. This is my perspective on it. The language of teamwork is the same language for everything whether that's a Fortune 500 company in Silicon Valley or a hospital administration job or working as a combat leader in the military or being an astronaut. It's all the same language. Now, there might be different dialects of it. Bear with me, I never used this metaphor, so we'll see where it goes. There might be different dialects of this language, right? 
meaning you might pose, you might use different body language or you might use different tones or you might do different things. Um, but the, the overall, the language is the same. And so being a good leader has so many over, it, being a good leader teammate in one field has so many overlapping qualities in any other field which is why I think when you're, you develop yourself as a good leader, you can be successful in many different fields. So what's the one, there's a lot of things to get in the way of, of being a good teammate, of being good, but it's the human. And all of the negative and the bad things that come along with being human. That's not the best answer, or maybe not the nicest answer to hear, but it's true. We're not perfect creatures. We're not, we have... You know, we have our insecurities, we have our vulnerabilities, we have our egos. We're all driven by different things. And you're trying to get people, these individual thinking creatures, to work together towards a common goal. It's not an easy thing to do. But all of those bad things that I mentioned about being human, they're also what makes it such a worthy cause. And it's what also really makes really brings out the best quality traits of being human. And so when I think about it and I think about my own pitfalls and failures as a teammate, it almost always goes to the same thing. And it's ego, choosing myself over the team or allowing my emotions to control my actions instead of just stop thinking about what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say, think about how that might have an effect on other people. And just being more critically thoughtful. And that's a really, it's a hard thing to do because it requires you to set aside emotion. It requires you to remove yourself from the situation and think objectively to critically think, you know, the, the, the idea of critical thinking is that you take an action or situation for, for the situation as it is and consider all sides. And that's, uh, it's such an important trait. And so if there's anything I can pass on to, to both of you is that you develop this ability, this muscle, because it really is a muscle. You need to exercise it all the time about being critically thoughtful about entertaining the idea that you might be wrong in this situation, you might be wrong in an argument, or, and when you do that, uh, it's really eye-opening. It's so eye-opening. It allows you to off, almost see the world as a chessboard, see, see the situation as a chessboard, and see where the pieces fall, and how your actions might set yourself up to be successful, or on the contrary, set yourself up for, for failure. A lot of metaphors in there and maybe a little bit more deeper than you were thinking, but very insightful question. And, uh, uh, fortunately has a, has a pretty complex answer. Yeah, <laughs> I think we definitely learned so much just in that couple of minutes of that, uh, metaphor, that extended metaphor, if you will. Um, so, in terms of um, your journey and things that we would have liked to have covered, I think we checked all of those boxes. 
and we just wanted to um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think you definitely gave us some incredible insight on what it means to um, be a team member and like things that make us human. We all have our pitfalls, we all have our mistakes, but ultimately um, with determination and with um, some of the perseverance that you had talked about, um, I mean, clearly people are capable of doing great things. Um, also, uh, we did cover a lot of your stories and I think there was more that um, we could have talked about, but there's only so much we can share in one hour. Um, so for people listening, um, we encourage you, if you'd like to learn more, um, I believe you have a podcast with Jocko that is almost four hours long and it definitely covers a lot more um, in detail. But in terms of what we covered here, I am really um, grateful that you shared your story with us. And yeah, also there's one last thing that we wanted to bring up. Um, I have to ask, is it true that you were in the grocery store when you got the call to find out that you were going to be an astronaut? Yes, I was. I was in Market Basket in Boston. And if you're from the Northeast, you know what Market Basket is. And I was, uh, I think I had one of the few days off. A joke. There, you definitely get days off when you're an intern, but not not that frequent. But I had a day off on this particular day, and so I got to share that moment with my with my wife who was there with me. So that was a really special moment for us. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's been like over a year trying to get this together, but finally it happened. Um, yeah, this was really good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your experiences and. Um, everything up until this part of your life, because I'm sure uh, there's so much more that you're still capable of doing and that you're going to continue to do. You're welcome. And thank you, Jaden and Emlyn, for not only being some of the most tenacious <laughs> um, people that run a podcast, but for also being willing and being motivated to do something like this. I think I applaud both of you for this. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you, talked about what the future holds. The future is very bright for all of us. And I'm looking forward to seeing what both of you um, go into and, and that how that positively impacts other people. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. If you haven't already listened to the last episode with Dr. Tammy Graham, set aside some time to check that out. If you look forward to hearing our next podcast, click the subscribe button. We'd also like to say thank you to everyone at NASA who helped make this interview possible. Be sure to follow our Instagram at Stories Behind the Scrubs and check out some of our other episodes.